You're listening to Idea Collider, a show that explores the world of asymmetric learning. On this show, I will sit down with pharmaceutical experts and business leaders to discuss how to embrace uncertainty and the different learning style that follows. I'm your host, Mike Rear. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another fantastic episode of Idea Collider with your host, Mike Rear. In today's episode, I'm interviewing Stephen Johnson, one of my favorite authors of all time. He's an author of 13 books, a TV host, and a remarkable podcaster. In this episode, he talks about innovation versus invention, one of my favorite subjects, and explains where good ideas come from. Additionally, Stephen talks about the individual and organizational hunch collection tools and shares how organizational culture impacts innovation. Moreover, he talks about at least two of his books, The Ghost Map and Farsight, that is illustrations of uh, some of those themes. So tune in and enjoy. Hello. Hey, Mike, how you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you? Very good, very good. Stephen, tell us something about, you know, you and, and, and who you are and how you got to here. Yeah, well, it's funny you say how I got to here because I did... I wrote a book called How We Got to Now and did a TV series called How We Got to Now. So so that that is the question. So I've done a bunch of different things over my now shockingly long career uh, as a middle-aged person. So I've written a, a number of books. I've written 13 books um, on a lot of different topics. So, it, you know, they ranged from stories about cholera outbreaks in London in 1854, which maybe we'll talk about, to books about video games and pop culture and, you know, 18th century chemistry and uh, and neuroscience and a whole range of different topics. But, the, you know, they all have had a, a kind of a, a shared interest in new ideas coming into the world and, and how people find those ideas and how they amplify those ideas. And and that has taken me into a couple of other forms of media as well. So I did How I Got to Now as a as a PBS BBC series and Extra Life, which is my latest book as well, which is all about human lifespan. Uh, that was also a TV series that we did with PBS and BBC. And I, you know, I've done a couple of podcasts. I just took over as the host of the TED. Uh, interview podcast, which is great, which is also all about ideas. So, you know, there's there's been a, a a bunch of fields that I've dropped into, parachuted into, <laughs> for for the books and other projects. But yeah, it really does come back to this question of like, how do people, how how does a new idea get into the world? Um, hmm. That's just kind of the unifying theory behind all this all this madness. Yeah, yeah. well, I, I will credit you. I think early on is someone that helped me see the difference in invention and innovation you know that was you know often as you were describing this kind of darwinian approach and the survival of the fittest being about the you know the doers rather than the rather than the thinkers uh, yeah. certainly that was, it felt almost contrarian when you were writing some of the early books yeah there was a, there was kind of a built-in in some ways it was a little bit easier back then because there were a bunch of built-in assumptions just in our language about how innovation or invention happened. And there, there's so many kind of classic stories that are stories of kind of the lone genius who has a, you know, sudden dramatic epiphany and changes everything. And that's, you know, and that, you know, it's like Newton and the apple falling from the tree and the, oh, I've got a theory of gravity. Like people love to tell stories like that. But in fact, if you go back and look at the historical record, they 
those kinds of breakthroughs rarely happen. And it's a much slower process and it's a much more collaborative process, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's borrowing an idea from here and remixing it with another idea from some other place, often another field. Um, and so, you know, it was, it, I, I think when I first started really writing about this stuff, it was it, on some level it was easier because there were a bunch of kind of stock assumptions about how all this worked that it was pretty easy to disprove. <laughs> but now, now it's, now it's harder to be interesting. Uh, <laughs> you know, 20 years later. <laughs> well, I don't know, because I think there's still that attachment to that lone genius idea, and I think probably a hierarchy of respect for the inventor versus the versus the innovator um, yeah. in, in, in that space. But, um, you know, so some of the stories you know, that you've told really well over time, like, this, you know, Edison as an innovator versus an inventor or, you know, other, other things have always had that sort of deep appeal and breadth, right? And, you know, how does someone start to have a prepared mind and yeah. you know people see their way through an insight you know what is an insight what is an idea that that's, that's going to sustain yeah well you know part of part of what i have tried to argue and this shows up in a bunch of the books you know I, I most prominently in where good ideas come from which is kind of the, the book of theory and and all of these uh, other explorations of innovation is is adding that category of the hunch to to the other you know more developed categories of kind of insight and invention or innovation and things like that and and to give people license in their own work in their own kind of creative practice or thinking practice to really embrace you know in the book in in good ideas i call it slow hunches right this idea that you know the the most important ideas almost always start as this weird little fragment that is barely meaningful <laughs> and it's not really clear whether it's going to be useful at all and it just takes time to develop and takes time to to sometimes kind of combine with other hunches sometimes in other people's minds or just kind of germinate for a while and and so the the challenge of this is that you know hunches are the you know the easiest things to forget because by definition they're half baked or a quarter baked and so you've got a million things to do you've got all these deliverables you've got you know responsibilities that you know you have to focus on because they're part of your work and so that weird fragment of an idea that you have that might take two or three years to really develop into something you know usable gets lost and you forget about it so, and, you know, they're great. I mean, we could spend all our time talking about it. I mean, the one example that I often use in describing this is is Tim Berners-Lee inventing the web, you know, probably top two or three innovations of the last 50 years in terms of its consequence, maybe the, the most with the internet, I suppose. And, you know, Berners-Lee started tinkering with this idea as a little side project at CERN, the, you know, Swiss physics lab as a new employee and it was really just a project for him to keep track of his new colleagues like he he created a little database with kind of a rudimentary hypertext where if he met someone new he would create a little entry for them and it would link to another project they'd been working on if they collaborated with someone he would create a little link between it was actually kind of a little bit of a social graph Mm -hmm. and he just you know kind of tinkered with it for three or four years as as this little you know side hustle that he was doing just i mean just for his own benefit Mm -hmm. and over time he began to think well this is an interesting architecture 
that could be used on a on a on a broader level. And it was it was really about five years before we began to think, wait a second, this is a platform for global communications. This isn't just like a little reminder file for me. And you know, it's partially that he was smart enough to see the opportunity there. But it was, it, part of it is just the tenacity of keeping the idea alive for five years and giving it the time to de develop. Yeah, and I mean, in there, I, I love those two ideas of the slow hunches, the hunches, and probably the plurality of hunches, right? Not just the one, but also the the idea of tinkering. And I know you've written about prototypes and other things yeah. and how people use those as an sort of active learning process. I mean, he and others, I think, would have had, you know, he certainly wasn't sitting there then thinking about today and the way that it might be used, but certainly was thinking about, you know, what, what's the next experiment to, to, to do? Yeah, and, you know, this is actually another idea that I developed a lot in um, in some ways, slightly sequel to Good Ideas, which is this book, Wonderland, that came out four or five years ago, which is about, actually, it's a book about play and delight that came out on the day that Trump was elected president of the United States. I've had some books that were well-timed in terms of global events, and then I've had some books that were poorly timed, and Wonderland, sadly, was one of those books. But but basically, the argument in that book was that there's, if you look at the history, there's just a shocking amount of world-changing ideas that began initially with somebody doing something just for the fun of it, like tinkering with like, hey, I made this little optical illusion, or like, whoa, I can make this cool sound by blowing through this old bone that has holes in it, or I made a little robot toy. And the argument there is that, um, you know, it's kind of a variation in a way on the slow hunch idea, which is to say that the reason why play and delight are so linked to, you know, profound innovations is that what makes something playful or delightful is that it surprises us in some way, right? When, you know, the, the whole point of games is that they're unpredictable. They don't end the same way every time you play them. And so... By definition, when you are building something to delight someone, you, you are trying to m make something act in an unpredictable way or in a way that surprises somebody given their expectations about how the world works, right? Mm -hmm. And so when you do magic, when you make, you know, when you make a little automated robot uh, a thousand years ago when nobody's ever seen an automated toy um, sure. you know you're 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 surprising somebody and filling them with delight and joy but that that actually is pushing the envelope of what's possible right you're having to think about the technology at whatever the technology happens to be um, in order to get it to do something new and surprising and by doing that you often say oh wait hold on I I just made an, in the case you know in Wonderland I talk about these these engineers in in, uh, in the middle of the Islamic Renaissance, like a thousand years ago, and they invent this mechanical instrument that's kind of like a music box. But the big breakthrough about it is that it you, you can swap out different cylinders with codes on, inscribed on the cylinder that allow you to play different tunes. Mm -hmm. And so you take out one cylinder and you put a new one, and, and this machine can play a completely different song. And it's basically the first programmable machine. Right? It's the first machine that behaves differently depending on the code that you put into it. And that idea of programmable machines, which is, you know, probably the most important idea of the 20th century in a way in terms of changing all of our lives, that idea stays alive for centuries 
in the form of you know programmable music boxes and then little programmable toys that their their movements are controlled by you know swappable cartridges and then it moves on to looms mechanical looms and then it slowly mi migrates to calculations and computations and things like that yeah. and so that's you know is, is a great example of just like and in the people who are building these little toys in baghdad in you know a thousand ad we're not at all thinking well this will be eventually a fantastic device for doing complex mathematical calculations at high speed <laughs> they were just trying to make something that was fun but that is often the seedbed of uh, uh, of much bigger ideas yeah and, and that kind of breaks down into two ways one is who are the people who who you are letting play right with stuff mm. And who are the noticers? Who are the people that spot something in one field and and bring it across? So I know Michael Schrag's book, on, you know, Serious Play, talks about the idea that play is not not it's not just a fun activity; that it's you know it, its process is you know designed to produce surprise. So you know, who, who do we let play in our in in the world today to to produce this stuff? Yeah, you know, it's a great it's, it's a great observation and and thought. There are a couple of things that that I'm reminded of here. One is I I, I once heard this story from um, uh, Tom Kelly, who who's who founded IDEO with his brother David, and you know IDEO, fascinating organization, does a lot of you know very innovative company has been for a long time, and and he told me once that they have this tradition inside the organization which I love, which is that every Monday morning, the like senior management meeting begins before they turn to, you know, the Q4 projections and, you know, what, what new client they're signing up for, you know, that week. They have a game, they have a round of show and tell. And the show and tell is, oh, I went to this really interesting sculpture exhibit this weekend. And look at this, I took this picture, like my daughter brought back this crazy doll from Japan on her trip there, whatever. And the idea is that it just creates a culture at the very top of the organization that says, we know that the most interesting ideas, the, the most kind of lateral ideas are going to come from your other stuff that, mm -hmm. you know, doesn't see, you know, your daughter's doll that they bring back from Japan or the sculpture exhibit you see. Um, and we want we want to create an internal organization here that really, you know, values those outside discoveries. and. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and it, it just you know because it's the senior team, it it really says this is something yeah. we do at the very top of the organization. We want all of you to do it. We also want yeah. to recognize that. But the other thing I was going to say, which is again about kind of company culture, I think is you know every organization has a kind of implicitly not every I suppose, but a lot of them have implicitly someone who's a kind of intellectual matchmaker in the organization who's like, oh, you know, I was just talking to Julie, you know, who's in the design team. And it's really weird. She's working on a problem that's kind of complements the problem you're working on in this other part of the organization. Like you do need to have coffee because, you know, I think you'd learn a lot from each other. You guys would be great partners. And I think that that's, you know, a, a vastly underappreciated role. And that I think actually, it, it almost makes sense in organizations to, it, when you find people like that, to actually deputize them and say, hey, that's actually your job. Just do yeah. that all the time. You're the chief connection officer in this organization. Yeah. You know? yeah. And it, rather than have it be something that just kind of organically happens, it isn't, you know, a formally recognized. 
Yeah, because there's an interesting part of that, which is that you don't know, you know, in providing the stimulus, you don't know what problem someone's trying to solve for at the moment or what that might inspire. But the, I think there's a, there's a there's a kind of embrace of this idea of intellectual, you know, deduction from problems. Right, if we just think about the problem hard enough without external stimulus, that that'll you know that's a that's a good approach to this. But uh, you know, yeah. to go orthogonal or to go oblique feels you know maybe not as not as serious in 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 many organizations yeah i think that you know it's it's a little bit of a it so you know one of the things that i've written about a lot and that's kind of implicit in this idea of the network theory of innovation as opposed to the lone genius is that diversity in the people you collaborate with is a huge driver for making complicated decisions which i wrote about a little bit in in my book, Farsighted, but also for innovation as well. And that diversity can be measured in intellectual diversity in terms of fields of expertise and, you know, life experience diversity, you know, gender diversity, ethnic diversity, where, you know, all the different kind of measures of it. Um, generational diversity, age diversity, which I think is a very important thing as I get older, I appreciate that more and more. But, and we can talk more about that, but the, the part of the point here is that you also want to create environments in your own like in a sense in your own mind where you approach the problem from different angles as best you can. Like you come into the world, you have a certain way of thinking that is accumulated over the years and you're inevitably going to be kind of stuck in some of that framework, but you can, you know, you can mess, you can mess with that in different ways. I mean, I have this joke that probably I shouldn't talk about, but in my writing work, I have these two primary times a day that I do my writing when I'm working on a book. And and one of them is right now, actually, you're taking me away from my writing time, which is in the morning with my first, you know, big cup of coffee of the day. And I do that's where I do the really like important work where, I, you know, if there's complex things to explain or I have to go through a complicated historical timeline with a lot of different documents and, you know, I really need to focus and get it right. That's where I do, you know, 80 percent of the words generated are during that time. I don't do, I try to not write ever in the afternoon because I'm kind of useless in the afternoon and I try and just do other stuff that doesn't require that level of cognition. But I do a bunch of, you know, important work at night after dinner over a glass of wine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, sometimes sitting out on the terrace here with my computer and it's, but the crucial thing is it's a different kind of work. It's a, yeah. it's a more associative work. It's more creative work. It's often kind of shorthand mapping out where I'm going next in the chapter, like, oh, I'll do this and I'll do this and I'll do this, whatever. And, or it's, or it's adding like a little more poetry to the prose that tended to be a little bit more efficient in the morning work. And I think it's literally like, there's just two slightly different versions of me, one on caffeine and one on wine that, <laughs> that, that brings a slightly, you know, it's like diversity inside of your, your own yeah. brain. Um, that I mean, that ends up, yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. um yeah, and that's always fascinating me about you because you know one of my other favorite authors alongside you was stephen jay gould and his ability to mm -hmm. this idea of consilience you know things that jump together as a uh, and the range of things that you explore uh, i was always fascinated do you start with that idea of range or do you find it in the in the journey yeah well you know putting me anywhere near Gould is, is very flattering. He is a big influence on me. Um, in fact, the chapter, there's a chapter in um, Where Good Ideas Come From, Acceptation, um, which is about borrowing basically, in, uh, you know, a tool designed for one thing and turning it into a tool 
for some mm-hmm. other seemingly unrelated purpose. And that, that, that happens in evolution. And that also happens in culture and technology. And, and I got that originally from Gould. Gould wrote a wonderful essay about that in the, in the eighties. I, I took genetics at university and, and the thing that blew my mind was the spandrels of San Marcos. Yeah. 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 You know, that's that, 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 that I still remember the moment I sat in the lecture and, and heard someone describe this using someone that wasn't built for that reason. Yeah, I'm actually working on a new book that Gould shows up in briefly, more on the political side, because he had very interesting politics in addition to his, yeah. his thinking. But so anyway, I'm I'm flattered to be anywhere near Stephen Jay Gould in your estimation of the world. But um, so so in terms of, you know, my discovery process, you know, part of what I do related to the slow hunch uh, ideas that I I, I do try to capture as much as I can of just random stuff that comes over the transom over the course of the day that I see on Twitter or that I stumble across if I'm reading something. And, you know, I've, for years I would maintain the single file that I call the Spark file, which is just like this giant Microsoft Word document. I, I slightly fragmented it now using notes on, on the Mac and the, on the iPhone. But for I think about ten or fifteen years, I had this one document that ended up being something like one hundred fifty thousand words long, which is which is longer than any like twice as long as any of my books. And it was just you know random ideas that I would stumble across. And the idea was to go back and reread it um, every six months or so because you would you know you forget so much of it, and you'd be like, oh, that idea that I had two years ago actually is relevant now because something else has happened that I you know that wasn't visible at that point. Um, and so I still do a version of that. I have the, the, the funny thing, and this may be a little bit, I don't know. I, I, it's interesting to think about how applicable this is to, to people who aren't just actually writing books. But one thing that's unusual, I think about the way that I work with the books is that in, in multiple cases, I have had the idea for a structure of a book before I've had the idea for the content of the book. Um, okay. Ghost Map was like that, my book about the cholera outbreak, that I wanted I wanted to have, I wanted to write a book that it would have a single continuous narrative that would allow me to tell an historical story that you know was kind of start to finish, ideally over a short amount of time, like a kind of day one, day two, day three story, but that would allow me to jump off in all these directions and explore lots of different fields. And I, I kind of had that architecture in my head first and it was like what story can i find that will fill that would fit into that particular box yeah. and yeah. and there have been kind of two of my books enemy my book enemy of all mankind was like that in a slightly different way, a slightly different structure for that which is my book about pirates mm-hmm. um and probably my favorite actually of all the books and so and and that's that's a weird kind of counterintuitive way to work where you like you start with the genre and then you slowly figure out what what the actual substance should be um but again i think it also like for you know makes you explore the the world of possible topics in a slightly different way you've got a different filter that you're looking at everything through um, compared to the way you normally would i I kind of like that idea of um you know because i can see there'd be two ways right one is that you know everything before you start writing and the other is that you it's 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 a journey of exploration and uh you know i remember telling folks about the pirate book and you know where British democracy came from, and you know yeah. all these things. You go well. You would never have got to that without starting here. 
that's a really interesting observation. And but you know, so uh, I'm always interested because a lot of people would want to know that. You know, where did democracy come from? And I think I don't think you'd ever get the pirates naturally that way. You go yeah. way. It was like a, a kind of easy step. Yeah. So yeah, that's a great point. So a couple of things about that. So there's a, one of the best feelings as an author, and I, you know, this is generally happened to me with all the books at some point, but you know, you start, you commit to a story or a framework or an argument, but when you commit in terms of like, actually, you know, signing a, a, a deal with the publisher, like this is the next thing I'm going to write. You don't know everything, right? Most, I mean, maybe some people finish their books and then sell them, but I generally know about 20% of what's going to be in the book when I'm actually committing to writing it. And there's this kind of wonderful process once you start really diving into it, we're like, oh, I mean, this was so true with the with Enemy, the pirate book. Uh, the more I uncovered, the better and better it got. And, and the more connections that were there, you know, I kind of started with like, oh, there's a great thrilling chase and a global manhunt and they're pirates. How, you know, there'll, there'll be something there, <laughs> you know, like I've got to, I know that the narrative is going to be able to drive this. And, and then I got more and more into it. And I realized it was, a, you know, in some ways about the birth of global capitalism in this way. And, uh, you know, an integrated kind of global media system and kind of the weird, progressive politics of pirate ships which is a whole other thing and so that you know that kind of discovering as you're going is is a big part of the process for me and the other thing about this i was just talking about this yesterday with someone else there's a great quote from kevin kelly whose books you probably read like what technology wants and and uh, the technium and things like that um that he said I think he said it a couple of times. He said it to me once when I was interviewing him about his process. And he was like, I think the line is, I write in order to find out what I think. <laughs> and, you know, that that's kind of what I do. I mean, I'm not maybe the, quite that extreme, but I understand what he's meaning in the sense that, like, you can have some thoughts and they can be relatively coherent in your head, but they get very, they really come, they, they really get crystallized when you are forced to write them down. And yeah. there is often a process whereby in writing it down, you, you genuinely have a new idea that you wouldn't have gotten to, or you might not have gotten to just sitting around thinking. And so there's that exercise in writing it down that, that forces your mind to work in a slightly different way. Well, I guess there's also just the, the kind of willingness to journey to a place from which you'll have a different vantage point on the on, on the thing. Because if you have to know everything before you start the journey, it's actually going to be incredibly difficult to, to 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 do what you do. But to gain vantage on a something, and I guess it might be deliberately or accidentally, seems to be a you know part of the process there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you have to you have to be open to happy accidents. You know, a lot a lot of a, a lot of these things, both in terms of organizational culture and and writing and being creative, is you know how do you engineer serendipitous discovery? You know, which is on some level that's kind of oxymoronic, right? So, what serendipity is not planned. It's, you know, so like how do you plan for the thing that, by definition, is unplanned and surprising? And that's you know, I think that's partially by just like I, I you know, I talk about this a lot with with social media, um, with Twitter in, in, in particular. You know, and there are a lot of things that are annoying about Twitter, but I have gotten so much out of it. I feel a little bit like Churchill talking about alcohol. You know, <laughs> I've gotten more out of it than it's gotten out of me. Um, yeah. it, it, uh, it, 
it's it's a constant source of serendipitous serendipitous discovery for me. You know, every day I sit down and scroll through the feed, and there's some crazy thing that I did not know that I was looking for that someone is sharing that turns out to be relevant in some way to something I'm working on, and the or not even to something I'm working on, but just something that goes in the hunch drawer, right? And but that that takes a deliberate practice. I think. And the deliberate practice is cultivating the people you follow. And so what I've tried to do is just really follow an eclectic, interesting and diverse group of people, largely in terms of their fields. Right. So I follow a bunch of, you know, science journalists and in and, and this, this day and age kind of COVID specialists. And then I follow a bunch of musicians. I love following musicians, get again, kind of glimpse into their work. I follow architects and political writers and, you know, a bunch of tech people. And yeah, it was like, whatever it is, 200, 300 people. And yeah. it's just a really surprising mix. And by doing that, you, you're getting out of the, the complaint that people often have about social media, which is, you know, that it's just an echo chamber and it's filled with people who are just like you, you're following people who are experts in other things that aren't related to you. And that, you know, obviously you're picking up other things that they're sharing as well. So that network widens and it's just, you know, <laughs> you sometimes hear people be like, oh, you know, before the internet, people used to be surprised by things. And now we just are in our little bubbles and we only experience, you know, exactly what we want to experience. And it's like, are you using the same medium? Like, I don't understand. It's, it's so much more. There's the, the problem is actually that there's too much surprise, I think, in a way. You're constantly being like, I did not know that about elephants, you know, like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> instead of doing your work, you know. But uh, but that, but you know, that you have to make sure that you're following, you know, that you've set up an interesting mix of people to follow. I guess that is, I mean, that is a, a planned serendipity in that in 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 that framing, right? And I think yeah. And the vulnerability to be interested in something that you didn't know, because I, you know, I think the the folks who that get echo chambers want echo chambers. I, you know, I, I learned this because I've got I've got this record label that's, you know, really a, was a bad idea, but I still have a record label feed that I scroll through. So I have the you know the, the pharmaceutical one, I have the record label one, and I I have to look at both of those every day, tend to participate in the in the pharmaceutical one more. And then I set up a couple of streams, which are just lurking streams, where I where I follow people who are just either crazy or or politically different, and I never comment. I just listen and, and watch what these folks are saying, and it's really interesting because you can see the same event happen in the world, and then suddenly it splits. Especially in the states now, everyone has a different message within about two seconds of something happening. Yeah, and I, well, that's an interesting feedback loop, right? Because if you only if I only read the one, I would have a very different view of of the world than, than, than I would, but, you know, so I, you know, I guess, you know, artists and musicians have had songbooks and sketch pads and so on for, and writers have had, you know, ways of capturing stuff. I'm really interested in this organizational culture one is, you know, how, you know, what, have you seen any great examples of, you know, sketch pads and notebooks and, and so on in, 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 in the corporate world? Yeah, it's really, well, it's such an interesting time, I think, in the sense that, the kind of tools for thought software. There's so many apps out there now that that people are, you know, which I which I've been. I mean, I when I was in college in like 1987 or 88, um, the Apple came out with this thing called HyperCard, and mm -hmm. which is kind of a prototype of what 
or forerunner of what would become the web. Um, it kind of had a hypertext-like system, but it was not networked. And and I got so into that, and I started building th this tool in HyperCard to help me manage my notes for college, and you know, capturing ideas and uh, and it was one of those things where like. I spent the whole semester building the tool to help me with my note taking at my classes and stopped going to the classes because <laughs> I was so into building the tool. Anyway, so that, that those kinds of tools I've literally been obsessed with for God, what is that, 38 years or something like that. And and it does feel like there's just this amazing, it's kind of a renaissance of, of that right now. And, and thinking about how, but 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 I do feel like that um there are a lot of those that are really well suited for individuals. Um, and what the nut we haven't fully cracked yet is like, how does an organization share its, you know, spark file or its, you know, hunch drawer or whatever it is. I, I think that, you know, I, I've never been a big Slack user. So, I, but it, I gather that there's some of that that seems to happen on Slack. Um, you know, a lot of people are really into Rome research um yep, that yep. tool it, it doesn't quite I, I'm, I'm very intellectually it's it's very impressive it seems to be deliberately designed to kind of have a collective knowledge graph where mm -hmm. other people you, you, know, you can create your own kind of mm -hmm. models of ideas or notes for yourself but they can kind of interlink with other people's i i it doesn't quite work for mm -hmm. the way that my brain works for for some bizarre reason but those are some experiments that are out there, but I do feel like it's um, the, the the kind of collective hunch collection is still uh, there's still much much room to be done there. Yeah, and it's an interesting thing to think about how organizations become smarter than the individuals in them. You know, you know how how they are, yeah. and I think you know certainly small organizations feel like they have that that um, you know, interdisciplinary affinity group where you know they can problem solve together and then you've got the value of diversity but as soon as an organization gets divisions it feels like it stops yeah you know maybe there's a hierarchy of respect for one division versus another or maybe there's a linearity to it but yeah i think you're right i haven't seen that you know anyone industrialize that so far you know there's a funny story i've never written about this but it came out of where good ideas come from because i was giving a talk at um the American kind of cereal company and other food company, General Mills, make a bunch of cereals and, you know, big, big corporation in, in the Midwest. And I gave my little talk about, you know, how do you extend your collective network, your liquid network of, you know, diverse thinking and all that kind of stuff. And they came up afterwards and they told me a great story, which is that they had partnered with a couple of other Midwest based big companies and including one of them was 3M. And they created this platform, an online platform for retired employees, so mm -hmm. emeritus employees who, in many cases, had, had worked for 3M or General Mills mm -hmm. for you know forty years. They lived, they worked their whole life there, and they'd retired and moved to Arizona, <laughs> but they still had a lot of expertise and a lot of loyalty to their company. And so they created this online system where current employees. If they had a problem or some issue they were trying to wrestle with uh, that they needed advice on, they could post to this shared kind of idea space. And if one of the retired employees had a useful contribution, they could, they got, I think there was a little bit of a small economic compensation, but mostly it was like the pride of 
you know, I'm 80, 82 and I've still got it. You know, I still am helpful to my old team. But, but the key thing was that it was spread across different organizations too. So somebody who was X 3M could see the things that, uh, you know, at General Mills. And but the classic story was that someone at General Mills was working on um, fruit roll-ups. I don't know what this is called in England, but, you know, the little kind of pressed fruit that is attached to a little plastic wrapper and you kind of, for kids, you know, it's like a yeah, kid's yeah. fruit thing. And they were having trouble where the pressed fruit was getting stuck to the plastic and they, you couldn't unfurl it. So it was basically inedible because you didn't want to eat the plastic. And so they posted this and someone from 3M was like, sticky but not too sticky <laughs> like, <laughs> that's our whole business like we made billions off of that with post-it notes like we know the chemistry for this you know and so yeah. you would have never thought that you know an office supply company would have some expertise that would be relevant for like a kid's food you know product yeah. but turns out that they had exactly the expertise interesting interesting but i think that there's part of that vulnerability to post it in the first place which is uh which which is an important part of that uh, that, that, that process yeah, you know, you mentioned that before. It's interesting thinking about there's kind of vulnerability and a willingness to be kind of lost and lo- a little bit lost in public. Yeah. Um, and there's some of that in in what I do and kind of venturing into these things that, you know, I really don't, I have to get my bearings because um, <laughs> I'm not an expert in this field. You know, you could also describe that not as vulnerability but as you know ridiculous um confidence (laughs) you're kind of like i know nothing about this field but i'm going to write a book about it but what what can you know i can learn everything i need to know in two two years to write a book about neuroscience surely that can't be that complicated and but i but but honestly i i do feel like um that feeling of being somewhat lost and and at ease with being lost for a while in a new domain is is valuable it's good to kind of train yourself to you know to kind of sustain that feeling for longer periods of time but it also i think for me as a writer one of the things that is helpful with is that i go through a process of like i don't really understand this oh now i think i understand this and that helps me then think about what the reader is going to experience because uh, you know my job is then to explain it to them and so i you know in some of these stories in in these books i've had to kind of like really figure out the best way to think about the thing and having gone through that experience makes it easier for me to explain it to a lay reader whereas an expert sitting down to write doesn't have to go through that process because they already understand it. And that, that sometimes that leads to them having a harder time kind of, ex- <laughs> you know, anticipating just how ignorant the reader is, <laughs> you know, how much handholding they really need, you know, whereas I fully am aware of how ignorant the reader is because that was me, you know, six months ago. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. So I'm going to pull that in two directions. One is towards a sort of ghost map type thing where the sort of noticers or the, or the sort of comfort was finding out you know, not knowing and having different hypotheses alive. Could you summarize the journey that you took in following the kind of ghost map story through? Did you know it all before you before you started it? Or yeah, it, it, that's a great. Well, it's a perfect kind of case study because actually it leads into, in a direct way, the the project of where good ideas come from, um, mm-hmm. which then kind of you know, I ended up developing really over the next 10 years after that through how it got to now in Wonderland, we're all kind of building on the, on the backs of that book. So, so once I, so I, as I said, I, I started with the, 
you know, the, the format of that book, basically. And then, you know, just finally stumbled across the story. And and I, I'd known the story already. So 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 just for listeners who aren't familiar with it, um, the it, it is a relatively famous story, particularly in, in the world of public health and epidemiology. Every, everyone in those fields knows it. Um, uh, and it's a story so. about what? Well, things they do. I well, things they do. Right, right. Yeah. Well, that's that's part of the, the journey I went on. So when I first heard it, and I heard it in a couple of different contexts, which was a sign that it was interesting. I think I would be reading something about British history, and I would stumble across it, or reading something about mapping, and I would stumble across it. And you know, that was a sign that, that this is an interesting story because it connects to different fields. But the, the classic telling of it is that it, it's the middle of the 19th century Cholera is one of the deadliest killers in 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 Europe. It had not been in England until 1832, um, but after that point, particularly in you know these large metropolitan areas, namely specifically London, which had grown at an incredible clip over the preceding hundred years or so, um, it would kill tens of thousands of people. Um, you know, in these epidemic waves, it would that would appear generally in the summer months. Um, so it was a terrifying killer and everybody thought it was an airborne disease. They thought it was something actually in smell um, that was causing people to get sick. This was the miasma theory of disease, you know, arguably one of the greatest kind of medical mistakes of the, of that period. And it could be because cholera is actually, we now know in the water um, and it's caused by a bacterium um, that is waterborne from contaminated water supplies. So, and since the whole medical establishment, the public health establishment, such as it was, was was trying to solve this critical problem with a fundamental misunderstanding of what the problem was, mm-hmm. and, and which led them to do a bunch of catastrophic things that actually like made the problem worse. And so the story is that an outbreak develops in Soho in the summer of 1854, terrible, or, or really the most terrifying outbreak of cholera in, in London's history, 10% of the neighborhood dies over the course of about three weeks. And the tell, classic telling of the story is that this local doctor named John Snow, not the character from Game of Thrones, <laughs> goes out into the neighborhood and is trying to solve the mystery of how cholera came about and what was causing it. And so he creates a map of where people are dying in the neighborhood with little black bars representing each death at each address. And the map shows a very clear concentration of death right around a popular pump where, where people would get their drinking water at 40 Broad Street in the middle of Soho. And he looks at the map and he's like, aha, <laughs> it's not in the air, it's in the water and I can prove it. Look at this map. And he shows it to the authorities and they take the handle off the pump and the outbreak stops and the world converts to the waterborne theory of cholera. And it's one of the great breakthroughs, uh, you know, in, in, in science in, in the 19th century. And so I thought, well, this is going to be a great story. It's like, a, you know, it's it, it, it's a medical mystery. It's a it's a killer on the streets, of, you know, of London in the 19th century kind of structure. It's just it's not Jack the Ripper. It's a bacterium. And so I thought it'd be really an exciting book to write. It turned out that most of those core elements were actually really not true once I started researching it. And and the biggest thing is that is that Snow had been working on the waterborne theory of cholera for like five years before the outbreak came to his doorstep. And it was really a slow hunch, not a eureka moment. And he, you know, he'd been kind of dabbling with this idea. He'd done a number of other maps trying to 
figure out whether he could persuade people of it. And it, it, his problem with it was really a, an argument a problem. He couldn't, he couldn't get people to come around to his theory. Mm-hmm. And what the, what the Broad Street outbreak did was it enabled him to, because there was a single point source, he could really, the map was very convincing when, when he made it. But the other thing I found out was that he had these huge, incredibly important collaborators. And it wasn't just a lone genius. And he, he partnered with this local vicar who brought a whole different skill set to the to the problem and that he was a great social connector in the neighborhood and he knew everybody he wasn't a man of science. He didn't, he was not trained as a physician like Snow was, but he had a, you know, thick, kind of social web of connections in the community and he was able to track down a bunch of the key data points people who'd fled the neighborhood he ended up finding that kind of the patient zero started the outbreak in the first place which was crucial to the case and then also snow was dependent on these public records that william farr who's a major figure in, in extra life my latest book had started publishing you know about a decade before that would have these kind of bi-weekly mortality reports that had all this data about where people died, where they lived, what they died of, how old they were, all this extra data. And so there was a kind of an open source platform of information that Snow was able to draw on as well. And without that, he might not have been able to solve it. And so what it started as this kind of classic case of the lone genius has a eureka moment and everything changes, turned out to be a completely different kind of story. And And, and I really only discovered that in, in researching it um, after I had sold the original idea. And that then became really through doing that, I started to think, you know, maybe there's a general book to be written here that uses um, stories like Snow's, uh, like the, the story in Ghost Map to, to tell a, a bigger picture about how this kind of thinking really works in practice. It's interesting because, you know, if you use that idea of sort of planned serendipity, you know, the creation of the data tables was it, right? Because they, they had no point other than just writing stuff down for a while so that the notices come along later. Yeah, that, that that's, you know, one of the great virtues of, of open platforms is that you just, you're saying, I'm not smart enough to figure out all the ways that this could be used. But if I release it to the world, um, there's going to be a Jon Snow out there who's going to say, hey, I can do something with that data that you didn't perceive. And you just widen the number of minds that are interacting with that information. And, you know, in general, you get better results that way. Yeah, interesting. So we're all forward to some like farsighted. I know that, you know, the intro chapter on, uh, you know, the, the, the search for bin Laden was generally oh, yeah. But that sort of, you know, the creation of options, the, the, the sort of search for, you know, ideas, this kind of, um, you know, not knowing who was right about that as well, and uh, and the process of well, how would you know whether someone was right, and how you know is and time being a, an important factor. It was such an such an interesting book the way you sort of described that. You know, optionality, decision making. How much information do you need before you make a decision? While the clock's ticking, that was that was a really interesting you know combination of those you know ideas. Who are the notices? Who are the experts? Uh, and how yeah. would you know? The- yeah, you know, it's funny with that book because I, it it has a whole long recurring story about Obama basically just deciding, making this momentous decision about both whether this mysterious figure that they've detected in Pakistan is actually Osama bin Laden, and then what do they do about it? Right, two two related but different decisions that they had to do that were that took an immense amount of time and 
but my original my original version of that book, Bin Laden was not in it at all. And it was heavily shaped. And if you read it, you, you'll remember this. It was heavily shaped by Middlemarch and by 19th century novels, which also, I think, have a beautiful capacity for showing people making a complicated decision in their life. Middlemarch does this very famously with Dor- Dorothea Brooke, the protagonist. And, and you get this interior journey into someone making a complicated choice. And I, I tend to think I have this theory about narrative that like we underestimate how much great narrative is about people making complicated choices. Like Breaking Bad is just like one bad but complicated choice. <laughs> Every episode where you have to figure out something and make a decision and, and there's great drama in that, right? But but in that first kind of, it wasn't even a full draft, but in that first version of Farsighted, there was a moment where my editor was like, I'm excited about this book, but boy, there is a lot of 19th century you know, Victorian literature in it and I feel like we need something a bit more present day. And, and, and in some ways, that's what led me to the Bin Laden story, which then became more prominent, actually, than than I think the Elliot uh, Middlemarch part of it. But but it, you know, it, I, I, one of the things that I I got out of that, and you know, it sounds like this is something that you're really exploring w- with this series. You know, originally it was I was thinking about it a bit in terms of politics, like you know, the question you never hear at a presidential debate is, "What's your process for making a decision?" Yeah. That your job is going to be to make a ton of decisions as yeah. the executive of our country. Yeah. Um, so how do you do it? Like, what's yeah. your technique? Do you yeah. throw darts at a wall? Do you bring in a diverse team of experts? Do you, you know, yeah. run scenario plans? Like, the, there are a lot of techniques out there for making complicated decisions, and I'd like to know what yours is. Yeah. And and I think in the in the um, Osama bin Laden hunt uh, story, you know, what was really remarkable about it is that they had a very they had a deliberate a deliberate practice for making these decisions and they really went out of their way to avoid some of the mistakes that had happened in the past with things like Cuban Missile Crisis and um, the the entrance into the second Iraq war um, where they were trying to deliberately complicate you know the tendency to, to have groupthink um, confirmation bias all of these things that you know kind of distort our decision making abilities they they put in, in place these practices and and it worked the other thing is that they generated a really good result at the end of it it was bin Laden and they and, and they got him and so and and I think Obama was you know you know for, for whatever fault he might have had he he was a very good um, artful decision maker and and I felt that that was not kind of examined or celebrated enough as a property in our in our leaders. But then it, by the end of that book, the thing that I got really kind of obsessed with by, by the end of writing it was that, why, you know, why don't we teach these skills? Mm. You know, I mean, I, I have a, I went to some good schools <laughs> back in the day, many, many, many decades ago. And not once did I ever take a class that talked to me about how I could become a better decision maker with complex decisions, right? It just was not something that was on any syllabus anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I think of all the things that I learned, particularly, you know, in high school that uh, were just completely unrelevant, that were just completely irrelevant to the subsequent life I had. But mm-hmm. You know, one of the things about becoming a better decision maker or becoming a more innovative thinker is that no matter what you do in your life, even if you don't end up getting a job, (laughs) um, that, you know, being a good decision maker is 
a skill that will be valuable to you. Um, and, and also, it's a it's a it's a it's a wonderfully multidisciplinary field, right? If you if you if you if you imagine a kind of core class on decision making, there's neuroscience in it, there's history in it, there's psychology in it, there's group psychology in it, there's um, you know probability. You know, literature potentially, right? <laughs> Certainly, you could teach Middlemarch, um, so you could learn all these other, you know, kind of disciplines while you're exploring it. But it would all be in the service of a of a really useful skill. Yeah, yeah, and no, you're right. I mean, we tend to, you know, celebrate, you know, assertive confidence instead of, you know, right comfort with uncertainty. But you, you feel like, well, no, there is a. I mean, there's a science to decision making um, the, the, the many we'll talk about, but it's not something that we tend to look for in our you know next president as as, as you as you know as as you said. Um, but it, this thing that I've been exploring, I, i'm I'm very poor at writing uh, stuff down, but there's this question I've been asking, you know who do you ask when no one knows, which is this you know because often we've had we've had this long history of expert based knowledge but this question of who do you ask when no one knows actually you know i think the process that people often go through as well which defines innovation which is but it's still let's put a lot of experts in the room and then you know we'll we'll listen to what they say but you know i think all the way through this conversation you've you've shown the value of diversity and awareness of biases and groupthink and and so forth but it certainly feels like we should be you know diving into that as a as a discipline instead of you know leaving it behind yeah, it, you know, it also comes up in that's a good phrasing. The the who do you ask when nobody knows? Like I think about that a lot in terms of um, thinking about long term consequences of, of things, right? Um, another theme that was in Farsighted. So how do you how do you think about okay, we've come up with this innovation. How do we think about how it will actually impact the, the world once it is? you know, released at, at some kind of scale. And we know the history of innovation is replete with endless stories of unintended consequences. And so how do we get better at anticipating some of those consequences? Like actually one of the things I'm I'm working on right now is, is kind of a long piece about this guy, Thomas Midgley Jr., who in one inspired period in the 1920s invented both um, leaded gasoline and Freon, the, the 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 compound that ultimately caused the hole in the ozone layer. So there's an argument that no single human being, <laughs> and certainly in the 20th century, did more damage to the environment than this one, you know, good-natured, well-intentioned inventor. Um, and the I mean, because the leaded gasoline was just unbelievable. We're still digging out of, from, from that catastrophe. And the thing about that is interesting is there are two different kinds of predictions are necessary for those things. We knew that lead was poison, right? We knew that this was a problem. There was a debate about whether you could have small quantities of it that would be released by having it in gasoline and maybe people would, but it was pretty clear that this was a dangerous, toxic substance and we probably should be messing with it. And they just basically like, were like, well, too bad. That's the price of progress because we're going to make a ton of money if we sell people lead and gasoline. Um, but the freon problem um, with the ozone layer, that was not knowable, right? We didn't even know that there was an ozone layer, right? We didn't know enough about atmospheric chemistry. We wouldn't, in fact, know enough about atmospheric chemistry to even identify the problem for another 30 years or 40 years even, really, depending on how you measure it. And that's the thing where I think we probably – I think we are already better – 
at anticipating the problems that are the equivalent of the leaded gasoline problem. Like we do have, we have institutions, we have, you know, regulatory bodies that can, can do some of that work. The trickier part is like, how do you, how do you solve for the problem that is not going to become visible scientifically for 30 years? Right. That I don't, I, I'm trying to kind of figure out like, are there ways that we can kind of trick ourselves into at least anticipating where those, you know, what those unknown unknowns might be. So we can at least be ready for them when they, be, when they do become visible. I don't know. Um, but that's, that's one of my current little obsessions that I'm, I'm still very ignorant about. <laughs> and that's what well, I thought I'd share. <laughs> like the mechanical, you know, music players, we need more people building more stuff that we can draw upon uh, when, when the moment comes. But uh, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm, I could easily talk to you for the rest of the night and you were morning about uh, about this. Um, so I do need to to, to, to bring us to a close in, in respect of your time. Uh, this has been wonderful. It's, if someone wants to find out more about you who doesn't already know something about you, have you got a, uh, where would you tell them to start? So it's like, you know, which Tom Waits album do you start with? Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. My singing voice is a little higher than Tom Waits. Um, <laughs> Well, you know, now, I mean, I'm on Twitter um, at Stephen B. Johnson, but I started a Substack newsletter last year called Adjacent Possible, which is a, which we could have talked about as well, which is the chapter in Where Good Ideas Come From. Um, and I've really, that has been a great addition to my, I don't know, what I do for a living. Um, you know, I'm not, it's, you know, it's kind of once a week. <laughs> um, but uh and it's and I use it sometimes to update, you know, news about my other projects uh, when appropriate. And sometimes I go back and use it to revisit, you know, bits of earlier books that never were shared outside of the books themselves. Because with thirteen books, it's quite a back catalog. So if things are something pops up in the news that's relevant from something, like I just did a little piece that was adapted from Wonderland. So it's a it's a way into some of the earlier books. And then there are a lot of kind of new essays and conversations there. So, so if you go to Substack and and search for adjacent possible, um, that that's a great place to keep track with what I'm what I'm up to. I'll include that in the show notes as well. I'm I'm a subscriber and I'm always you know delighted to receive your you know I'm gonna, not, not not quite random but you know your <laughs> eclectic. <laughs> Substack's become this wonderful way of people doing short form essays about. Yeah interesting thing so uh, I, I i second that uh, recommendation so uh, Stephen, thank you so much for, uh, for 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 being with me and uh very much looking forward to the next thing thanks that's been a, a real treat getting to talk that's it for this week's episode of idea collider to continue the conversation visit our website at ideapharma.com follow us in your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode don't forget to rate and review us on apple podcast until next time, I'm Mike Rea, wishing you great success.